Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you will remain standing. So excited to dive into our text today. We've, for people that are visiting, we've been moving through the book of 1 John. Um, we've, been, we've been moving through and talking about uh, what 1 John is about and what John is teaching. So for everybody visiting to catch you up with where we're at, uh, the idea of 1 John is John is writing to combat the teaching of a group of people called the Gnostics. Now, these Gnostic teachers have taught a couple of things um, that have kind of whipped up the church and caused confusion, um, that there's this higher level of knowledge that, that we get outside of the teaching of Christ and the apostles, outside of the teaching of Scripture. Um, and the second thing is that whatever you do in your flesh doesn't matter um, because you are born of the Spirit or because you have the Spirit and they're at odds with each other. I won't rehash all of that, um, but basically, John has set up, know that these are separate. Um, you are one or the other, and it does matter how we live. So he's given us these, these tests as we've moved through the book of 1 John to give us this idea of testing our fruit, testing our spirits so that we know. And we came into our text last week, which was um, 1 John chapter 2, 28 through verses 3, 3. And, and this is going to, to feed right into um, our text today. Um, see, the idea of these verses uh, are kind of, they, they're knitted together. What we're going to learn today, verses 4 through 10 that Jake read for us, and what Shane taught last week, um, they, they, are, they are a continuation of each other. See, last week, the idea uh, that Shane taught is that, will we be ashamed of Christ's return, or will we have confidence before him? See, John was speaking about the second coming of Christ, giving us motivation to obey Christ's command, prodding us to be diligent and to obey and to love the Lord. You see, if we are diligent, then when Christ does return, we will have no need to shrink back away from him. In fact, this diligence, this obedience is, is how we can be sure that we are born of God. Shane gave the example to us last week that you can tell that, that Seth is his son because of how he looks and how he acts. Similarly, do we have the, you can tell who I belong to because I look just like my father. In fact, I look so much like my father. Um, my, uh, my grandmother, my mom's mom said, I didn't know Chase got to dance with his mom on his wedding day. Um, I was shown pictures of my dad when I was in high school and I, I literally took the picture and said, I don't remember taking this picture. Now, that's how you know you look a lot like somebody. Uh, similarly, my daughter, Maddie, she's three years old, and she already has all the same mannerisms of my wife, Chapel, tries to use the same vocabulary, although, if we're being honest, can't pronounce all the words. Um, but this is the idea that 
you know who we belong to because we act like them, we look like them. And John is giving us this same idea. He's saying, you can tell who are the children of God. See, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 29, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in fact, the text from last week is so vitally important to how we understand this week uh, that we're going to spend a few minutes just quickly revisiting those verses before we get into our text today. Um, and because starting in verse 28 of chapter 2, John is intru- introducing the idea of being children of God. And as I said, we're all the way down into verse 10 of chapter 3, where we're going to finish today. John is continuing with this idea. In fact, he will say there at the end of verse 10, it is evident who is born of God. See, when we have this kind of thing in scripture, you see these verses that are sandwiching each other. It tells us that everything that comes between these verses is explaining, is clarifying, is expanding on the idea. So so we're going to take a running start into our verses today, and we're going to start off by reading um, verses 28 and 29 of chapter two, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, talking of the second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, John says that everyone who practices righteousness. We must remember here, John is speaking to believers who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ and he's reassuring them. And one of the ways he is doing it, as we've said, is that he's reminding them of how to act in contrast to the teaching of those Gnostics who said, it doesn't matter what you do in your flesh because the flesh is flesh and the spirit is spirit. They're taking things out of context. And John is saying, clearly, no, it, it, does, it does matter what we do in our flesh. He's going to go on to say, in verse one of chapter three, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called his children. You can look at that word and you can say what kind of love he has lavished on us, what he has bestowed upon us, this gift that he has given us. And the very gift is that we are called his children. That is the gift that, that he has given to us. And then he's going to go on to say that, that when Christ comes back, we will be perfected as Christ is perfect. You see, he says in verse three, John says, everyone who has this hope, and the NASB translation says this hope fixed on him, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. So this idea of fixed, our hope fixed on Christ, it's the idea of a tightrope walker who steps out on his tightrope, and once his feet are positioned on this, this narrow line, he fixes his eyes in a distance. Because by keeping his eyes set in the distance, he's able to maintain his balance as he walks across this tightrope. And if he were to lose his balance and fall off, there's death, at very least serious injury on either side. This is how we should approach our walk on a daily, on a daily basis as believers. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, fixed on the cross, fixed on him coming back, his return, so that we may purify ourselves as he is pure. You see, when we are reborn, we are reborn as children of God, and we will act like God's children, which means not habitually practicing sin, because we can no longer continue in sin. We are incompatible with sin as believers, and, and this is the very point uh, that John is going to enhance in our verses today. So as we move into verse 4, we see our first point, 
Our first point that we see in verse four is the idea of lawless living. In verse, in verse four, it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So first, let us take a look, take a, take a notice that John makes no exceptions here. He, this has been a theme throughout the book of 1 John. As I've said, he, he's creating this dividing line um, that we can tell which side we are on. You are either light or you are dark of the darkness. You, are, you either love the world or you love the Father. And now John will continue to refine this point for us in our scripture today. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. So if we look at verse four, he says, everyone. So, so everyone. In fact, he will repeat a few words that we see right here in verse four. He will repeat definitive categorical statements. So what I mean by that is everyone no one, whoever. He will say that seven times. He will say the word practice. He will say the word practice eight times and the word sin 10 times in all just these six short verses. So we need to pay attention to these words. We need to understand what they mean. And this is, this is it. He says, he says everyone. And when he makes this emphatic statement, this is all encompassing. It's no excuses, no exceptions. He makes no room for double standards or shrinking back from this idea. No, no, John is driving home the point that he started back in verse 28 of chapter two. We must abide in him, all of us, if we are the children of God. We will abide in him, everyone. And John will continue, as we said, to reemphasize sin and the word practice. So we need to camp here in verse four for just a few minutes so we can fully understand and grasp the idea that John is laying out before us. So second, let us make it clear that John is speaking of the direction of our lives. Everyone who practices sin. The word sin here means to miss the mark. It draws the idea of an archer aiming down, down for a bullseye and letting go and missing, okay? So it's this idea of missing the bullseye. So we have to define, well, what is the mark in this case that sin has missed? Well, this mark, it's the bullseye of God's will. And God's will is holiness. It, it is perfection, and none of us can say that we are, we are perfect. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And with this in mind, it makes clear, as Shane stated last week, that John is not talking about every single day, living in a perfect way, never stumbling. He is, however, saying that if we obey, that if we are born of God, we will strive to hit God's will, to hit the mark that God has set before us. We will, we will strive daily to reach that goal. To put it in modern terms that we can maybe think of it a little better, we'll talk about basketball. We're here in Memphis, so we'll use John Morant as an example. John Morant is a professional basketball player. Professional basketball players are the best in the world, right? They practice every day for hours, hours a day, since they were little kids, to be the best as it's possible for them to be at basketball. The entire goal of basketball is to hit every shot you take. But sooner or later, no matter how good John Morant is, he will miss a shot. He will shoot a shot, he will miss the mark. 
See, this is the idea that John has in view here. We strive to hit the mark, but if you are practicing sin, that's as ridiculous as John Morant practicing to miss his shots. No basketball player would practice to miss a shot, and no Christian will practice missing the mark of God. Looking back in our text, John goes on to say, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So we have to define lawlessness here. Well, lawlessness is more than mere opposition to the, wall, to the word, or to the law, excuse me. The word used here implies the idea of, of hatred or contempt for the law. Lawlessness is chaos. It's, it's disorder. It's anarchy. Lawlessness here is not the idea that there, there is no law. It, it draws to mind for me the, the old Wild West films. Um, my, my grandfather loved those, and Shane, I know you love the old Wild West films. And so you see in these movies, there's always these outlaws, right? These lawless men who, who live as if there is no law with no regard to the law. But in these movies, there's always this John Wayne type character who's the sheriff, and he comes in, and we all root for him. But he comes in and enforces the law. See, the, the sheriff in these movies would have no grounds to come in and enforce the law if there was no law to obey. He, he comes in and serves justice, which is right, and we applaud it. But then people live as if there is no law. They live lawlessly. And see, living that lawlessly, it, it's living as if there is no law when one clearly exists. But as believers, we should have the exact opposite disposition towards the law of God. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. See, this psalm is going, goes on to say that the word of the Lord is sweeter than honey. We should identify with the psalmist. We should identify with what David says. And we should love the law as believers, as God's children, not willfully break it. We should obey God's law because we are his children. He's given us a new heart and his word is written on it. A true, believe, a true believer will not be found habitually in the practice of lying, stealing, blaspheming, drunkenness, sexual immorality. The list goes on. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5 that now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives us this machine gun style list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Even with this, this, shock, this uh, machine gun style list, he says this is an all-encompassing. It's anything that is against the law of God. And we have the law of God. We know his word, we know his truth, and it's anything that is against that. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, Paul clearly warns that if you practice things like these, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we have a tension because all of God's children will inherit the kingdom of God. But if we practice lawlessness, then we must call into question the validity of our claim of salvation. And John makes this clear. If you will, look with me into verses 5 through 8, where we see our second point. 
he said, we see our second point, which is our righteous redeemer. John's gonna talk about Christ, our righteous redeemer in these verses. He says in verse five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. See, the writer of Hebrews echoes this thought in Hebrews 9.26, he says, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared. So see, John has switched modes here um, because he's saying the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying, has appeared. Christ came the first time to take away sins, but as it is in Hebrews, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is, this is the great truth that we lay our hope in as believers. John says, you know, he says, we know this to be true. Christ bore our sins on the cross at Calvary. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The God of the universe the creator of all things, the alpha and the omega, wrapped himself in mortal flesh, came to earth, lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, died the death that we all deserve. I mean, can you fathom it? Can you, if you truly sit and we just sat here the rest of the 30 minutes we have and just thought about that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he came and took away our sins. And it was a perfect atoning sacrifice. There was no flaw. In chapter two, verse two of 1 John, John told us that Christ is our propitiation. See, this word propitiation means that Christ satisfied God's wrath on the cross. He bore the wrath that we deserved and he satisfied the Father. And he could only do this because he was perfect. Christ was perfect. Otherwise, he would have had to pay the punishment for his own sins. See, the second part of verse five tells us that in, the, in him there is no sin. He was perfect. In Jesus' entire life, he never once lied, stole, blasphemed, dishonored his parents, committed murder in his heart by hating his brother. No, he was the spotless lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. In 1 Peter 2, it says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So you see, he, Christ, took away sins. He removed them as far as the east is from the west. If he took away sins, how can we receive a perfect gift being given a new heart, being conformed into the image of Christ, we begin to walk in obedience to the law that we now love instead of the law that we hate, yet continue to make it a practice that, that we break that law? Well, John says plainly, moving into verse six, that, that we cannot. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one. See, see we have this word abide here again. As we've been moving through First John, We've seen this word several times. And here he says, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. 
In John 15, 4, Christ says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. See, John is repeating what he learned from Christ himself. Remember that at the beginning of 1 John, in the first chapter, right at the, right at the beginning, John said, I have seen, I have touched, I have heard. He was with Christ. Christ taught him himself. He is an apostle. And he's combating these false teachers who once again are, are asserting that it doesn't matter how we act. He's saying, no, it's the, it's the exact opposite. In fact, John, or Christ said later in that, in that same chapter of John, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. If you keep my commandments. And John has said this as well in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. He said, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Obedience to the word is essential, not for salvation. John has made this clear, as does Paul in Ephesians 2, when he says that salvation is not a, a result of work so that no man may boast. No, not, a, not for salvation, but if we have a true saving encounter with Jesus Christ, our life will be defined by practicing obedience to his word. This is how we know that we abide in him. By this obedience, by the fruit that we bear, we can be assured that we remain safely in Christ, that we won't shrink back at his coming. In fact, John just stated in verse 24 of chapter two, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the Father. See, we're brought into this, into this family. We're brought into this relationship. We're allowed into the circle, if you will, of God and his family because we've placed our faith in Christ as believers. And Christ obeyed the Father perfectly and willingly died on the cross to remove our sins. Everybody in this family will be conformed to the image of Christ and begin to obey the rules of their new father. And as is the style of John, he, he gives us a counterexample right directly on the back of this second part in verse six. He says in the second part of verse six, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. See, we just read 1 John chapter two, verse three, and this is in direct contrast with what John stated there and has just stated earlier in this verse. By this, in chapter two, verse three, by this, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Well, here he says the exact opposite. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You see, sinning is the exact opposite of keeping his commandments. It's lawlessness. It's breaking God's laws. So you see, if we do live in this perpetual state of sin, we do have disdain for the law of God. We live our lives however we want to with no regard for God. The Bible says that, that we have neither seen him nor known him. To not know God is, that means you don't have a relationship with the son. 
And therefore, you're at, you're at enmity with the Father. He's your enemy. This means that when you breathe your last breath, Hebrews 9.27 says that it is destined for man to die once and then face judgment. We will stand before the judgment seat of God, the creator, and you will have no advocate. You will not have that propitiation that Christ provided on the cross if you do not know him. And Isaiah 64 says that even our most righteous acts are filthy rags to the Lord. Apart from Christ, we can only do what is evil. Even our best intentions often have selfish motives and motivations. But there's a way that we will, we will not receive the punishment that we justly deserve. Well, and how is that? We already answered it, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus, the perfect son of God, died to take away sins. And John continues in verse seven, speaking of our righteous redeemer. He says, little children, and this is John's term for the, for the believers that he loves. This is his endearing term. So he says, little children, believers, sheep, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, as Christ is righteous. See, he says, Sheep, do not be deceived. And, and we need to listen to this. We need to, we need to take this advice from John. There are many today that would tell you it doesn't matter how you act. There are many today that would, would try to deceive you on what the very gospel is itself, that would try to deceive you on the truths that are in the word of God. But John says, do not be deceived. And some of those that would try to deceive you on what the gospel is, those deceivers will claim to be Christians themselves. Matthew 7.15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Remember, sheep believers come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In fact, John, just earlier in chapter 2, said that the Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, anyone that denies the Father and denies the Son. And these antichrists will come from within the very church itself. Do not be fooled. Do not be tricked by every wind of doctrine. Do not be led astray. Don't be led into believing that your sins are just quirks or, or do not matter. No, God is holy. His standard is perfection and he is just. We have sinned and fallen short. Every Christian in this room can remember a time where they lived with a fist raised to God in willful rebellion. We choose to sin, but if we are true believers, we should be able to identify with Paul when he says in Romans seven fifteen that for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. See, he, he hates his sin. He still does it, but he hates it. Do we hate our sin? Do we stumble and fall, but, but, but despise it and wish nothing more than to be able to put off this old flesh, fix our eyes on Christ coming back because we know we'll be purified as he is pure? Do we feel the same way about our sins that God feels about our sins? We should war against our sin and practice righteousness. And the icing on the cake of this, of this verse, looking back into our text, he says, if you are abiding in Christ, 
If you are trusting in his death and resurrection and therefore practicing righteousness, the NASB once again translates this verse to say, whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Not just a clean record. Shane said it last week or a couple weeks ago that it's not as though you never sinned, but as though you always obeyed. We talked about Romans 8, 29 will be conformed into the image of Christ. Paul goes on to say in those verses in Romans 8, 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We've been, if you're, if you're in Christ, you've been justified. Shane made this point last week. We will not be perfect until we meet the Lord. Until he comes back, we will continue in our sin. We won't be perfected. And that's absolutely true. But it's a done and decided thing. Look at these verses that, that Paul has said. These are past tense. He's already, he's already predestined. He's already justified you. It's already decided that you will be glorified. If you are born of Christ, you are seen as righteous today before God. If you are in Christ, you will never be more righteous positionally than you are today sitting in this pew. See, the change from death, dead in your sins, to life, alive in Christ, is the most dramatic change that has ever happened to you. And if you are not a believer, if you repent and place your faith in Christ, it will be the most dramatic thing that will and can ever happen to you. We are justified. We stand before God Almighty clean, not because of our own works, but because of the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is a glorious thing. It's the only thing we can lay our hopes in. Everything else is fading away, withering away like grass. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Our souls are eternal. God is eternal. And we see in our verse that John continues to make these, these opposites, these comparisons. See, John just, made, just told us this positionally where we sit as believers, and then he tells us positionally where unbelievers sit. He says, whoever practices sinning is of the devil. There is no middle ground. There is no, you know, I, I do my best, but Jesus does the rest. No, no, you are sanctified because of Christ. And if you are not in Christ and you are practicing sin, John says you are of the devil. And so if we continue living in and wallowing in this unrepentant sin, the word of denotes ownership. We are owned. People that are unbelievers are owned by Satan. Uh, they, they, they have to do the will of their, their master. They cannot de deny or defy the will of the one that owns them. And the one that owns them, it says in verse eight as well, Satan has sinned from the beginning. See, this is, this is Satan's very work. Apart from the toning work of Christ on the cross, we, we're all depraved. We all act out our own sinful, selfish ambitions. And I've seen it firsthand in my own actions and desires before God saved me. 
pulled me up out of the mire and put me in a new direction. And we as Christians should all be able to identify with that sentiment. In fact, the works of the devil, the devil as described in the second part of verse eight, are the very reason Christ came. He says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, Christ had many purposes in coming, but he came to reconcile us with God. He, Christ's main purpose that's in view here is that he came to destroy the works of the devil, to take away sins. And praise God, the story does not end at the cross. Because after that, three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he conquered death. You see, death is the result of sins. Romans 6.23 says the wages, you and I go to work, we work hard, whatever we do, roofing, electrician, pharmacist, we go to work and we earn a wage for ourselves, and we deserve it because we worked. The wages of our sin, the thing we deserve is death. That's what Romans 6.23 says. It's the very thing we have earned. And that is the work of the devil that John is referencing here. It's death itself. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Matthew 16, 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. (laughs) Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and then fulfilled it. There are hundreds of eyewitnesses to that fact. He fulfilled it. He rose from the dead. Everything hinges on Christ's resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, death is Satan's most powerful weapon, but Christ has already defeated it. He defeated Satan at the cross and then rose to took to rose to justify us and take away our sins. He took away the very sting of death itself. When we place our faith in Christ, we share in that victory. We have hope that we can fix ourselves on. There's a purpose in this life. We now live to glorify the one that made us and not only made us, but saved us from his own wrath. And you're either on one side or the other. You're either a child of Satan or a child of God. Look with me, if you will, in verse nine, where we see our third point. Like father, like son. See, it says in verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, in John chapter three, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. See, unless we are born of the spirit, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless we are born of the spirit, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. And anyone not born of the spirit does not understand this. That was pointed out in verse one of chapter three, if you remember, it said the world does not know us. They don't understand us because they are of the flesh. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. They're opposites. They're incompatible with each other. And this clear distinction, uh, this is set forth by Christ himself here. There's no middle ground or gray area. In fact, John MacArthur explains the new birth like this. Just as a human birth results from an implanted seed that grows into new physical life, so also the spiritual life begins when the moment of regeneration, the divine seed is implanted by the spirit within the one who believes. So you see there in verse nine, it says, for God's seed abides in him. The seed abides in him. It abides, God's seed abides in us, the believer. And we see this term abide again. It remains, it stays in us. We have been reborn by the divine seed that is implanted in us. We abide in Christ because we've been born again, not by our own works, not by anything we can do, but by the work of Christ himself. And how does this happen? Well, it, it happens by hearing and believing the word of God. In 1 Peter 1.23, it says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. This seed does not perish. It does not wither away. It is eternal through the living and abiding word of God. See, we've been reborn by this imperishable seed that cannot fade and cannot wither away. And that's why John continues in verse nine. He says, and he cannot keep on sinning. Cannot. Now this, uh, that this imperishable seed is in the believer, now that the believer has tasted living water, now that the believer has been born into the family, now that the believer is a child of God, he cannot keep on sinning. Not, not he may not. Not, eh, he probably won't. Not, uh, no, he'll be good. He, he cannot. It's incompatibility. He will sin, as we've talked about. He will stumble. But once again, this is a direction towards perfection we will see in our lives. And this will be realized when our, when our hope is realized. When we meet the Lord face to face, we'll be perfected and we'll sin no longer. And finally, in verse 10, he, he wraps up this section by saying, by this, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. See, this examination of the fruit in our lives reveals to us if we have been reborn into the kingdom of God. 
the children of God cannot habitually practice sin, while the children of Satan, like their father, it's their very work. They're perfectly compatible with sin. In fact, they long to sin. It's the thing that they chase after. They have no problem with sin. While the believer is incompatible, the lost is perfectly compatible with sin. No one has a true saving encounter with the risen Lord, the very God of life, and remains unchanged. John says it's evident. Believers, true believers and unbelievers are obvious. Now, don't be confused. Remember, John has written this epistle so that believers may have assurance. John's goal is to reassure the believers that he loves so dearly But to do this, he has to make this clear distinction. He has to show the chasm that exists between the two sides. And in fact, like we said, he's repeating the very thing he learned from his master, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, "You you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, showing our love for God by obeying his law and bearing fruit, and the one who does not love his brother, loving your neighbor as yourself, is not born of God. And next week we will see John dive into this test of loving one another even deeper. But by way of application today, we are called to be fruit inspectors. Examine your fruit. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Do you respect his name or do you use it as a cuss word? Do you love your neighbor? Or do you steal from them, lie to them, think hateful thoughts towards them? How does the seed of God abide in you if we continue to practice lawlessness? Second, if you heard this today and you realize that you have broken God's law, as I said, Hebrews 9.27 says, it is destined that man will die once and face judgment. I, I plead with you, God is just and he must punish lawbreakers, but he is merciful. And um, he wishes that none shall perish. Jesus Christ died for our sins. The son, the second person of the Trinity, paid your fine by dying on a cross. His whole ministry can be summed up in two words, repent and believe. So, today. Don't let the day pass you by. Turn away from your life of lawlessness. Call out to the Lord and be saved from eternal death and granted eternal life. And third and finally, if you hate your sin, if you, even though you fail, you're striving daily to war against it, you rely on Christ in your weakness, let this, let this ease your heart. Let this reassure your mind that that you have a righteous redeemer seated at the right hand of God interceding for you at this very moment. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of Christ Jesus. You know, I look around the congregation and 
I see so many faces that, that love the Lord, and, and your righteousness is obvious. I could name, name upon name more time than you guys would give me in these last eight minutes that I have to, to name people. You know, Miss Karen and Miss Debbie and Miss Laura Lee, who will show up every Wednesday night without failing and cook meals for us without complaining. Mr. Charles and Mr. Mike, who, who stepped up when a playground needed to be built and, built and sacrificed their time. And, and there's many others, and it, it just encourages me. It encourages me to crucify my flesh and to walk in righteousness. So I would in turn encourage everybody, everybody else, pick up our cross, crucify the flesh, be conformed to the image of Christ. John, buddy, he, um, Chase has studied and prepared and he's taught the text and he's given us application. So may God give us grace to obey, right? You think about, I mean, have you, are you abiding? Are you born of God? Are you obeying his word? It's a good test for us. Maybe you, we could even go so far as some of it you're sitting, most of you are sitting by somebody that you know, that knows you well. Um, if I ask you to turn to the person that you know well and, and ask them, do you think I'm born of God? Do you think I'm abiding? Do you think I'm... A, I'm living for the Lord. What would they say? We're not going to do it. All right, look at me. Look at me. <laughs> I saw a couple of eyes. They're like, ah. <laughs> they finna tear into them at the command of the preacher. Um, yeah, man. What if what if that happened? What would the person that knows you well? What would they say? Pretty good indication. We talked about that right several several weeks back. Hey. Why don't you ask your coworkers, your neighbors, somebody in your household, if they think you're a, a believer as we look at these tests that John gives us. Most of you probably already know, right, where you are. And, and again, this letter being written is to encourage us, right? Adrian is to encourage us. Mandy, to encourage us. Carly, it's to encourage us. Phil, to encourage us, right? Marianne, it's to, it's to, for us as believers, it should be a, an encouragement, right? Yeah, we should be encouraged. Not that we've, we've done it. No, we ought to be encouraged in Christ because of what Christ has done in me. I'm seeking to obey Him. I fall and I stumble and I do it terribly some days, right? We all fall short, but we desire to obey the Lord. And that gives, right? evidence that we know him that we're born of him right that we abide in him but if you're here and you've yet to repent we'd love to talk to you about how to do that if you're not sure what that looks like we'd love to talk to you about that there's i'd love to talk to you but there's a lot of folks here in this room that are born again that would love to tell you how to repent and trust christ work on the cross as your own we've had a good day good day at church appreciate all you who have taught children and taught adults and You've helped in so many ways just to make our worship possible. Sometimes we think, we just show up and we just have church, but there's a lot of work goes into church. We appreciate everybody that serves here on Sunday morning.